Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Nahum, chapter number one. Nahum, chapter number one. We'll finish our summer together, Lord willing, in a short series in this little, small, minor prophetic book that I suspect you haven't heard sermons preached from in a long, long time. This is kind of the logical next step for us in the summer. We have just finished the book of Jonah. And in many ways, Nahum is the counterpart to the book of Jonah. The focus of Jonah's ministry and the focus of Nahum's ministry was the city of Nineveh specifically, in a broader sense, the Assyrian Empire, which operated as Israel's chief enemy during this season of her history as a nation. Jonah expresses frustration at the call of God to go to Nineveh. And God shows mercy and compassion to the people of Nineveh at their repentance. God relents from the disaster he had foretold would overcome them. A hundred years passed. God raises up the prophet Nahum. It seems that the revival of Jonah's day did not last the turn of generations. And Nineveh and the people of Syria alike have given themselves over to unrighteousness, idolatry, and the acts of violence that were so characteristic of really who they were. God promises now that judgment would come. Nahum provides a certain point of balance to the picture of God's character received in the book of Jonah. There has been for years this unbiblical, unhealthy, uninformed idea that the Bible in the Old Testament features a different picture of God or even a different God than the New Testament. People even talk in terms of Old Testament God versus New Testament God. No such distinction exists in reality. Neither of the Testaments, old or new, are tasked with putting forth the full picture of God in his character. Nor is any individual book of the Bible tasked with setting forth the full picture of God's great character. If you are to know all that we are to know about the character of our God, you must consult the full counsel of God's word. Contemporary church culture has preferences for certain features of God's character. There's a great like for his grace and his mercy, his love and his benevolence but a great distaste for God's righteousness, his holiness, and even his wrath as it is featured in our passage. I would argue that unless you've come to terms with God's full character, his deep, abiding, unyielding devotion to righteousness, and his ferocity and wrath against sin, you won't have the stark contrast provided for the grace and the mercy and the benevolence and the kindness afforded in his son, Jesus. Far too often, there is a partial view of God's character that robs us of the ability to relish fully the amazing grace we find in Jesus. Nahum, in these initial verses of his prophecy, sets forth attributes of God's character that are seldom discussed these days, but which cannot be dismissed from our understanding of who God truly is. Nahum chapter 1, we'll begin together in verse 1, 
If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says in verse 1, the oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea so that it dries up, and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Nahum pictures God as the divine warrior fighting for his people. One of the interesting elements of both the books of Jonah and Nahum is that although the prophets have as the focal point of their ministry, the city of Nineveh and the empire of Assyria, the books, the written works of their prophetic ministries are really constructed by the inspiration of God's Spirit for the benefit of the people of God. In other words, this is a rare instance in which the people of God are reading the mail of another nation. They're being informed of how God intends to operate with regards to their enemy. And it's structured such that they are to receive comfort and encouragement from the knowledge of God's intended purposes among the nations. Think of it this way. From the perspective of the people of Israel, God has been somewhat passive toward the Assyrian people. In spite of their great unrighteousness, in spite of the, the threats of violence that they constantly pose to the people of Israel, God has yet to move on their behalf. From their perspective, perhaps God has yet to hear their plea for help. In their distress, God has yet to move to alleviate their discomfort, their anxiety, their fear of the people of Assyria. But now listening in to what God intends to do, there is, there is comfort. From your perspective, there may be times when you look, when you observe injustice and you desire to do something. Any recourse for the people of Israel was beyond their control. The Assyrian army, the Assyrian empire represented in their mind an insurmountable obstacle. And there may be seemingly insurmountable evils unfolding in your life. Things that are beyond your ability to control or to fix. Nahum stands as the prophetic witness that God fights for his people. Not just Israel 2,700 years ago, but that God fights for his people even now. He is the divine warrior of Nahum 1 through 3, who makes war on behalf of his people. Look at verse 2. The Bible says here, the Lord is 
a jealous and avenging God. I, I doubt that if you ask most folks who God is, that jealous and avenging would be in their initial responses to such a question. But this is precisely the way Nahum describes our God in verse 2. He is a jealous and avenging God. Some would suggest that these don't represent the best of qualities. Not just the best of qualities in God, but the best of qualities in anyone. But I would argue otherwise. The language of jealousy we often use interchangeably with envy, but the two words are distinct. They represent different things. Envy is to look at what someone else has and to desire to have it for yourself. Ten Commandments warn against this, right? Thou shalt not covet. Don't look at what someone else has and desire to have it for yourself. For to do so is to commit an act of immorality. It is sinful to lust after what someone else possesses. But jealousy, jealousy is the impulse to guard, to protect what is already yours? Some of you as young men or young women, as the case may be, can remember those middle school years. Young people talk now. Back in the dark ages of the late 1990s, we dated, but they talk now. That's the verbiage. If you, if you believed yourself to be dating a young lady in middle school or in your underclassmen years of high school and someone else expressed some affection for her, someone else caught her attention, you would be jealous because in your estimation, she was yours. She belonged to you, or he, as the case may be. That's the difference between envy and jealousy. Now, if you were looking at someone else's girlfriend and desiring her to be your own, that would be envy, right? Here, the Bible describes our God as jealous, the idea here is that God is committed to his glory, honor, and holiness. He alone is worthy of our worship and praise, deserving of the worship of people of every tribe and tongue and people. And any imposition on his glory, he will defend with great vengeance. He is jealous and avenging, the Bible says. God intends to have the worship of all people, and he will have it. The Bible says that the day is coming when either in this life or the life to come, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will give it gladly as a subject of the king in the here and now, or you will give it then. No less willingly as a subject of great judgment. He is jealous here, the Bible says, but he is furthermore avenging. The idea here is that he services justice. God is fighting for his people and he is fighting for his glory. He is slow to anger, yes, but Nahum announces here that God is now in fighting mode with regard to the Assyrian people. God is actively moving against the Assyrians in judgment. The reality is God is always actively moving in judgment against sin. No sin goes unpunished, Nahum says. Not only is he jealous for the worship, glory, and honor, and praise of all people, 
but he is avenging any imposition on his glory, honor, worship, and praise. Every act of unrighteousness is to come under the judgment of our God. He will not allow his reputation sullied by failing to provide for the needs of his people, nor will he settle for a situation in which his glory is paid to another. He is a jealous and avenging God. Verses 2 and 3 continue this explanation of what it looks like in the halls of heaven that God be jealous and avenging. Verse 2 continues, the Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. He is fierce in wrath. My, my prayer in this morning's prayer, the, the, my prayer before coming out and preaching and my prayer before every service is been, has been that God would allow that the truths of this passage would land well and heavily in the hearts of his people. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure that we really understand the scope and the magnitude of God's wrath against sin. I'm not sure that we give proper meditation to God's wrath against sin. The bow of God's wrath is bent against every sinner, and our only hope of salvation is in his son, Jesus. We see such perverted systems of justice, and we're trained from youth that there are ways of shortcutting and sidestepping the service of justice. But there is coming a day when in the courtroom of heaven, there will be no sidesteps, there will be no shortcuts, there will be no technicalities, there will be no way to escape the wrath of God against sin. I, I, I'm of that generation. I watched as a very young boy in the early 90s, that white Ford Bronco chased about Los Angeles County and the mockery of a trial that ensued. I don't think it's incidental that I also happen to be of that generation that seems to have such a keen interest in the service of justice in the world, something that seems to be forever beyond our grasp. But make no mistake, no matter how unrighteous systems and structures and nations and peoples may be in our day and age, the day is coming when by the power of God, what is so wrong today will forever be made right by a good and faithful God. It's fierce in wrath. You understand what that means for us? It means that the business of sin it's deadly serious business. Some of you are trifling around. You're playing games with sin as though there'll be no consequence. And it can only end for you in destruction. The Lord takes vengeance. He's fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. Verse 3, the Bible says the Lord is slow to anger. But he's great in power. Indeed, the Lord is slow to anger, and as God's people, we ought to say amen. Because God has been long-suffering and patient with you in your sin, and God has been long-suffering and patient with me in my sin. God knows he has. I'm thankful for God's mercy and grace, for the common grace of his long-suffering and patience with all of mankind. Now, how, many, how many times have we observed just in conversation and frustration of the crooked nature and the perversity of our generation. I don't know why God just doesn't kill us all right now. Just take us all out. I mean, if you watch the news, you'll wonder why God just doesn't kill all of us. 
I don't, I don't have a lot of theological insight as to why he doesn't. If I were him, I would have a long, long time ago. But thankfully, I am not him. He is slow to anger. And I rejoice in that. But you should never confuse God's patience and long-suffering with impotence or the absence of power. He is slow to anger, but Nahum quickly notes, he is great in power. You observe unrighteousness, you observe injustice, and you wish you could do something about it. So often it's beyond your power, it's beyond your control. There is literally nothing that you can do to turn unrighteousness to righteousness. But he can. He possesses, he bears the power to do it. You, you, can, you can look at world systems. You can look at the system in which we operate, our culture, governance. You can look at all of these things and find examples of built-in mechanisms that always result in ungodliness, in unrighteousness, in outright sin and abomination, even the celebration of sin and abomination. And you can wish, you can yearn, you can long that you could somehow fix it, but the power is just beyond your ability. All such powers, though they be beyond your ability, are well beneath the feet of a good and faithful God who again will one day make what is so wrong forever right by his great power verse 3 continues explaining the lord will never leave the guilty unpunished the lord will never leave the guilty unpunished i think for most folks the view of god's grace is that somehow some way for some reason perhaps beyond our understanding god just decides to look over our sins sometimes and just to dismiss it. If you leave church today and you get out on the interstate and you're driving 100 and the patrolman pulls you over and he says, you know what, today I'm not going to write you a ticket. It's Sunday and I'm feeling especially gracious and he lets you go. You'll say, he showed me grace. In other words, he just dismissed the reality that you violated the law. But that is not the way the grace of our God operates. He will never leave the guilty unpunished. Do you know why, as a believer, you can find the forgiveness for your sin? Because the penalty for your sin is paid by God's only Son, Jesus Christ. That is the only reason. There's never any inequity in the forgiveness that God bestows upon his people. If this morning, under godly sorrow and the conviction of your sin, you were to bow your head and heart before the Lord and say, God, forgive me of my sin. Wash me white as snow. Make me new. Grant the new birth, God. Help me to believe and save me from my sin. Do you know why God would grant forgiveness in that moment? Not because he would decide to look upon your sin as less than significant, unimportant, or even to outright dismiss it but because the penalty for that sin had been paid in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. The Bible says, transitioning in the latter part of verse 3, his path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. The transition in our passage is away from general observation about who God is, namely that he is jealous and avenging, to now... Some points of reference for us within the creation to understand how substantial his power really is. 
It seems that my concerns that this message would land with weight are the same for Nahum, that they would truly understand the scope, the magnitude, the the greatness of God's power in this act of judgment. And so God begins to appeal to, to, to various features of creation, features we associate with power, in order that we would understand that God's power exceeds even that. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. There have been a few times when in creation I have experienced the power of God in, in memorable ways. I don't, I don't mean the power of God in some kind of super spiritual or charismatic way. I mean you just watch and you observe the power of our God. Standing on top of a riverboat in the Mississippi River and counting the currents from one side to the next and remembering in that moment how mesmerized I was with the power of that body of water. It may seem small, but in the moment I was struck by that. Back in the early 2000s, there were hurricane force straight line winds that hit my hometown. I was in the, I was in the parking lot of the McDonald's trying to pull out onto the highway when those hit and the wind blew so powerfully you could not see outside the car. There would be momentary glimpses of the world around you when the wind would relent for just a split second. And once a sign blew across the hood of the car, you could feel the car moving signage from all around was blowing all over the streets. And even a lady blew into the car. The windows were blown out of her car and she was trying to find safety with us and the car that we were riding in. We were eventually able to pull her and her small child into the car with us. I don't get panicky about storms, but I got to tell you, in that moment, things were clearly beyond my control. I had no power whatsoever over what the outcome in that scenario would be for me or for the friends around me. Some of you have experienced the power of storms, tornadoes, earthquakes, and even hurricanes. These references to the created order here in verses 3 and following function as mere points of reference for us so that we might note that these fierce representations of power in the creation around us are under the control. These are powers granted by none other than the God who moves at this moment in judgment against the Assyrian Empire. The God who is fierce in his anger toward our sin, he possesses a power that exceeds the greatest power we've observed with our eyes. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. His path is in the whirlwind and storm. The clouds and dust are beneath his feet. Not only does this creation imagery provide for us some points of reference for understanding the greatness of his power, they're indicative of the fact that he is on the move. In other words, he is coming. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He is coming indeed and he is coming in power. Verse 4, the Bible says he rebukes the sea so that it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The imagery of the Exodus and the Israelites' entrance into the promised land, the parting of a sea, the drying of a river, is employed here in our passage. Not to say that God is coming in salvation, but to say that God is coming in judgment. At the very presence of God, wind and wave, bodies of water are moved by his mere presence. He makes all the rivers run dry, Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. 
Those locations likely don't mean much to us, but in the ancient Near East, these were representative of the most fertile areas of the ancient Near East. The psalmist often makes reference to the bulls or the cows of Bashan. If you were traveling in Bashan, you would be on the lookout. The fertile plain of Bashan provided good food for those bulls and cows of Bashan, and they were aggressive if you got within their territory. In Solomon's day, at the construction of Solomon's temple, the cedars of Lebanon were a significant feature in the construction of that temple for the fertile soil and the great rains that were customary in that part of the ancient world. But even in those areas, given to such lush vegetation, given to such advantages in climate and environment and soil type, the presence of God brings about a drought. The presence of God brings about a withering away. Rains come and go. Climate can shift and change, not in the ways often suggested these days, but climate can shift and change. We had a somewhat wet year last year. My yard looked great. Had a very dry year this year. Everywhere you step in the grass, it turns brown. And I've turned into that old man who screams at children to stay off his lawn. Climate can be a somewhat fickle thing, right? But there are more formidable elements or aspects of creation. Grass can wither. Flowers can fade away. But hills and mountains, surely they remain forever. Only not at the presence of our God. In his great power, at his entrance, the Bible says in verse 5, the mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his Presence And for the first time, people are in view, the world and all who live in it. Mountains and the hills quake and they melt at his presence. So too did the men of the world quake at the presence of our God. Revelation 5, the cry of those who have come under the judgment of God is that the mountains would crumble and that the rocks would crush their brains lest they face the wrath of the Lamb now coming in judgment. So too do the men of Assyria in the days of Nahum tremble at the threat of God's righteous presence among them. God had come down. I, I want you to, to think and to meditate on the fierceness of God's wrath against sin. And his unyielding devotion to righteousness, to goodness, to justice, and the service of justice in all the world. I think that can provide for us the kind of contrast that helps us to relish the grace and the mercy and the benevolence that we find exhibited so powerfully in the message of the gospel. There are times when I sort of grumble about my family, and I've got some, I've got some jokers in my family, and uh, my wife's family is even crazier than mine is. But, but, but in spite of all of that, she's not here, by the way. <laughs> she's in the last service where I didn't say that. In spite of all of that, I got, I've got a good daddy. Always have had a, a good daddy. If there was one word that I could use to describe my daddy, it'd be consistent. Just been steady, been the same. I, I, I know what my daddy does. If you ask me at a random hour of the day what my daddy's doing, I could tell you because it was the same thing he's been doing for the last 50 years. He's just steady, 
just steady. Big, strong man. My dad's a big guy. He's a, I'm the smallest guy in, in that side of the family. He's a big man. Even at 62, he's quite a man. I, I, if he wanted to whip me today, one, I'd let him. Two, he could if I didn't want to let him. Before y'all get tickled, he'd whoop all y'all, too. <laughs> Just a big, 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 strong guy. And, uh, you know, I've, I've never seen in my life, I've never seen my daddy cry, at least not that I remember. And I think if you ask my boys the same, they would, they would say the same about, about me. I, I don't, I, it's, it's an uncommon thing. You're not likely to ever hear an exchange between my father and I in which we're expressing our emotions or affections. You're not likely to hear us say, I love you, or for him to say that to me. But we know there's this kind of, well, you, you just have this look, and we know. And that's, this is not like a, it's bad. We're good with that. You know, I know where he is. He knows where I am. There's an awkward encounter, and in that awkward encounter, in the look, I know that he loves me. He knows that I love him, that we care deeply for one another. He's just been a good daddy to me. Big, strong guy. He didn't whip me enough as a boy, but I can remember every whipping I ever got. It was serious business when Daddy got the belt out. It was serious business. Back in those days, all the men had the belt with their name on the back. At least that's the way it seemed to me as a small boy. With, those, with that little band of metal that went around the edge of the belt, I'm not sure that that helped with the whipping, but in my mind, it made it even worse. I can remember every one I ever got, never seen him cry, big, strong man, even at 62, much of a man. But there's a moment that stands out in my childhood, and I, I, I don't know why I remember it except for the exchange that we had in that moment. We had been at the sitter, myself and my younger sister, the youngest, hadn't yet come along, and, and we were being babysat by my grandmother on my daddy's side that day, and I was exceptionally rambunctious at my mom's house. Now, I was actually a really good kid as a little, little boy, so this was sort of outstanding for me to be as ill-behaved as I was on that day, and I expected that when that day had come to its end, after being informed of my behavior, I would get what I had gotten before, which was a whipping I would never, ever forget. But I can remember my daddy coming into my little room in our little trailer and sitting down beside our bunk beds. I, I had the bottom bunk and sister had the top bunk. And not with tears, but with wet eyes, looking into my face and talking with me about that day with real concern. It was a look I don't know I, that I'd seen before. I don't know that I've seen it a lot since, although his concern has been expressed in various other and acceptable ways. But that, that moment stands out to me in my childhood because, again, it stands in such stark contrast to the sternness with which he usually dealt with me as a son. I don't know that apart from his consistent sternness, the heavy hand he had often taken with me, that I would relish, remember, or appreciate that moment of such mercy the way I do. And I am convinced that the reason so many presume upon the grace that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that they have yet to see that expression of grace 
against the stark contrast of God the Father's consistent hand of righteousness, sternness, and even judgment in our life. There simply cannot be amazing grace apart from our reckoning with this feature of God's character in which sin is deadly serious business and against which God would move in great power. That's the picture Nahum presents us with in these verses. Verse 6, he asks, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. In other words, he is coming. He is coming in power. No place is safe and no one is safe. Who can stand against his great indignation? Nahum gives us this glimpse of what we might regard as the better side of God's character with regards to our sin in verse 7. That is not to say that God's commitment to righteousness is anything less than beautiful. It is to rejoice in the reality that what we need is grace and mercy, and we find that in him as well. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him, but he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. Nahum describes God as a stronghold, as a place of refuge for those who turn to him. The day is coming when the fullness of God's wrath is poured out against the unrighteousness of this world. You and I as believers in Jesus may rejoice that a safe place has been made for us. A cleft has been carved out in the rock of ages in which we can withstand the judgment of God that is to come. A place has been made for us in Christ. A place that will forever protect against and withstand from the wrath of God against all sin. He's our stronghold in a day of distress, a place of refuge for those who put their faith and trust in him. The Bible features three instances of God's wrath being poured out. The first is in Genesis 6. God brings a worldwide cataclysmic flood. Interestingly, when skeptics look at the Bible, it's one of the first chapters that comes under their skepticism. It's almost unimaginable to think of God working, God moving in such a, a powerful display of judgment against sin, but it's precisely what God does. The book of Revelation, and in fact, in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of a day of God's wrath being poured out as the day of the Lord, the last day when the fullness of his wrath is poured out against all sin. And the third lands right in the middle. When the fullness of God's wrath is poured out on his son, Jesus. And Jesus drinks the bitter cup of God's wrath against sin. It is unfathomable. The agony Jesus must have experienced as he drank the last drop of God's bitter wrath against our sin. So that he himself would become our stronghold, our place of defense, the cleft in the rock of ages, our safe place, our refuge on the day of God's judgment. You may find yourself 
at last floating around in the judgment of God, the flood of God's judgment that is to come. But you will nevertheless find a safe place for yourself aboard the ark that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And then Nahum runs again quickly in verse 8 to note that he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. He will chase his enemies into darkness. If you think through a number of biblical texts, especially those passages that stand out for us for their teaching on God's forgiveness and grace, there is often great care taken in those passages to help us understand that God is not just arbitrarily giving away forgiveness without cause or concern for justice. The best example of this is 1 John 1 and 9. In 1 John 1, 9, the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's faithful to forgive. When you go to God in sincerity and ask that he would forgive you of your sin, you'll never be turned back. When there's godly sorrow and genuine contrition in our heart, when we come before God with all of our junk and say, God, forgive me of my sin, right and rectify my situation by gospel grace, save me from the dreadful consequences of my sin. God is always gracious and glad and faithful to do just that. But it's never because he simply dismissed your unrighteousness. But the passage goes on to say, not only is he faithful, but he is just, which is to say he's right. He's justified. It is an act of righteousness that God would faithfully forgive his people. Do you know why? Because the penalty for that sin has been paid by his son, Jesus. He is faithful and he is right to forgive even as he forgives the penalty, the price for your sin, having been paid eternally by the blood of our Savior, Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, that probably requires further clarification. Because in our culture, if you ask most anyone if they're a Christian, they will say yes, they will affirm that. It's scarce to find someone be honest about their lostness. So if there's, been a, if there's never been a time in your life when you were born again, when you felt and experienced the weight of sin, godly sorrow, and the realization that God's wrath was against you, and in that moment called out to God for forgiveness, if you're here this morning, and you've never been forgiven by God of your sin, saved from your sin, if you've never been born again, you need to know that at this moment, the bow of God's wrath is bent against you, and the day is coming when you'll be required to pay the full penalty for your sin. That penalty is death, and it is paid eternally in the place the Bible calls hell. But you don't have to, because a safe place has been made for us, and his name is Jesus. And the Bible says that the proper response to the message of the Bible 
is that we repent of our sin and we believe on him and we plead that he would make us new. Sometimes people get confused that the Bible says we need to get our act together and then come to God, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says that when we come to God with all of our sin and baggage, not only does he forgive us of our sin, but he awakens in us the ability to honor, love, and obey him that is altogether unnatural to us. That's what it means to be born again. You were born with a nature that made it easy for you to sin. But God desires that by faith and repentance, we be born again with a nature that gives us the ability to obey. What you need this morning to escape the wrath of God that is to come is to turn away from your sin and believe on Jesus and find unlocked within yourself the ability for righteousness and obedience that has been foreign to you until this very moment. Our forgiveness is rooted in what Jesus has done for us. I get forgiveness from God, not because of the things that I've done, but because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. What you should have done, what I should have done, Jesus did in perfection. And at the cross, He's traded his righteousness for my unrighteousness. The one who knew no sin became sin for me in order that I might become his righteousness. Jesus clothed himself in my unrighteousness and paid the penalty of God's wrath against me. He clothed me in his righteousness. So that on the day of judgment, when I stand before his standard, it's not the deeds that I have done that are assessed before the Father, but the perfect work of his only son, Jesus. That great exchange, your unrighteousness for his righteousness, can take place even this morning if you'll humble yourself in repentance and call on his name. He is great in grace and mercy. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and the privilege of looking into these verses in the time we've had together. I pray, God, that you would grant us a full and an adequate picture of who you are. Help us to know you, God, and as we know you, to love you and treasure you with all of our heart. God, I pray that in these next moments, you would call sinners to repentance, burden us, make our hearts heavy at the dreadful things that we have done. And Lord, once we've been brought low by conviction, lift our spirits by the gospel. I pray, God, that you would call the lost to salvation, that you would make the dead to live, that you'd give sight to the blind and discerning hearts to those who are cold and calloused and indifferent toward the message of the gospel. God, I pray that you would encourage the hearts of the saints, that indeed you fight for us. Your often unseen hand is actively at work fighting for your people. God, as we have observed that you are a God jealous for the worship and praise of your people, we pray that you would find just that here this morning. Hearts of cheerfulness and gladness at what you've done for us in the gospel. Save, 
sanctify in these closing moments. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name.